Good morning, everyone. We have a special treat this morning. Our Swami Mahayogananda is back with us after a long time. Uh, only the very new people won't remember him. Of course, everybody else, he was here uh, over four years in different stints at different times. was uh, the main force behind our wonderful temple inauguration program at that time. And uh, anyhow, we're very happy that he's back with us again. He'll be here until Wednesday. So if anybody wants to come visit while he's here, you check and make sure that he's here. Uh, he'll be speaking this morning on Unleashing the Power to Choose. On that alone do we meditate, that alone do we worship, to that alone, the witness of the universe, do we bow, to that one who is our sole eternal support, the self-existent Lord, the raft to safety across the ocean of this world, do we come for refuge. Om, peace, peace, peace. Good morning, my respected swamis and brother Brahmachari and my dear friends. I wish you all a happy new year, and I'll get right into my topic. It's wonderful to be here and to see all of you. The topic is Unleashing the Power to Choose. We have the power to choose. At least it seems so. But thinking about this topic, I realized that most often we don't know how to exercise it. And very often we don't exercise it at all. So that's what I want to talk about today. And what comes to mind first in thinking about this topic is Arjuna on the battlefield with uh, just before the great war, which was decades in the making, and Arjuna, of course, is one of the good guys, and he's a warrior, and he, he has to fight. There was no other option. They tried all ways and means of develop, uh, coming to some kind of compromise with the Kauravas, but they wouldn't even give them five little villages. So it had come to this. The armies are lined up facing each other, and Arjuna asks Sri Krishna, his charioteer, hey, let's go see. Who are these bad guys we're going to beat? Who are these bad guys we're about to whip in the battle? So Sri Krishna brings him, brings the chariot between the two armies where he can clearly see the enemy. And he finds that the enemy is his own people, his very own kith and kin, his own teacher who taught him archery is there on the opposing side, having had to take the bad guy's side. 
and Arjuna loses it. As we know, he collapses on the floor of the chariot. He doesn't know what to do. He can't, he can't see how he can possibly face these people in battle, though he knows that he, that's been the trend of all the events is leading to this point, and suddenly he's unable to do it. And finally, he tells Sri Krishna, I don't know what to do. Please help me. His weapons fall from his hands. He, 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 he's helpless, unable to choose. So sometimes it seems like we also come to such a situation in life when uh, we're faced with a big decision and we are unable to choose. We don't know what to do. So this is one aspect of this, of this power to choose and the inability to exercise it. But mostly we don't find ourselves facing these momentum decisions we're more faced with little decisions all day long. Now, I'd like to bring in uh, the other side of the spectrum and talk for a moment about Swami Brahmananda, who was the spiritual son of Sri Ramakrishna, the first president, or the second president, if you count Swami Vivekananda, of our Ramakrishna order. And not a mere saint, he was a saint maker. There was an incident in Madras, his disciple Swami Prabhavananda, at that time a novice, was attending on him, and Maharaj called for the almanac. So Swami Prabhavananda brought the almanac, and leafing through, he fixed a date for his departure. And as he's doing so, Swami Prabhavananda is smiling. Raja Maharaj said, why are you smiling? Well, Maharaj, you always do this. You call for the almanac, and you fix a day, an auspicious day for your travel. But then the day comes and goes, and you don't go, and you go on some other day, as you please. So uh, that's why I'm laughing. Maharaj Maharaj said, you know, you know why? The devotees pester me. They keep pestering me to fix a date. When are you going? When are you going? So I pick a date. But I do not move without the direct command of God. Swami Prabhupada probed him a little further. For everything you do, for everything you do, you have the direct command of God? Yes. He probed him still a little further. Isn't it that, well, you think of what will be the best thing to do and then offer it to God and think that, well, this must be God's will? No. I receive the direct command of God. God tells me what to do. So on this side of the spectrum, Swami Brahmananda doesn't need to exercise the power to choose. He is directed by the divine. His life is so in tune with the divine that he acts according to divine will effortlessly and receives the guidance from God. So this is the other side of the spectrum. Well, on one side of the spectrum, Arjuna is unable to choose. And on the other side of the spectrum, Swami Brahmananda has no need to choose. Now, we don't generally find ourselves on either point. If somebody, in fact, if somebody starts telling us that God is telling them what to do, we probably think they should go see a doctor. <laughs> so mostly we are faced in our day-to-day -day life with lots of small little choices. And mostly uh, we're continuously faced with these choices, what to eat, what to wear, where to go, what movie to see, what television program to watch, which contract to sign, 
maybe which person to hire when we're hiring a new person, small to medium-sized decisions. And most of them are actually kind of rote decisions, mechanical. We don't really have to choose anything. We more or less unconsciously, by the force of our habit, choose our daily actions. Now, not all of this is bad. If we had to decide every day on which, bed, which side of the bed we should get up, life would be intolerable if we had to make all these small decisions. We just get up on the same side of the bed every day by habit, and that's perfectly normal. Only we should get up on the, not, don't get up on the wrong side of the bed. That's the important thing. But, uh, for, or say, for instance, uh, a skill like driving. When the brake lights light up on the car in front of us, we don't have to think, oh, what's happening? Light, these lights are shining. Oh, those are the brakes. I better put on my brakes. It goes automatically. It's a habit. It's been ingrained in our nervous system. We see the lights. The foot comes off the accelerator, hits the brake. We slow down. That's fine. That's actually good. We, we need these kind of habits to get through the day. But there are other areas in which we also have habits, and yet... Uh, we don't realize that they're habits. I thought about the, the classic statement of the alcoholic. I can stop any time I want to. Right? I can stop any time I want to. Actually, they're compelled to keep drinking. They can't, uh, they can't stop. They think they can stop, but they can't. That's the amazing thing. We think we are free. Now, what about what we say? We tend to think that we are f free to choose what we say. But we also have habits of speech. Somebody insults us, we fire right back. Some of us, we fire right back. We have a, we ha we do, do we re respond with anger or do we respond with compassion, with loving words or joking words or, or teasing or praising? We have a choice in how we respond to an insult. But... Most often, unconscious habits take over, and we just, it just comes out. Then, what we think. It seems like we, sh we have a choice about what we think, about what we want to think. Uh, but all of us who practice meditation know that it's not so easy. The mind seems to have a mind of its own, as it were. We, we try, when we meditate, we basically, we are choosing to think of one thing. We are deciding that I'm going to think now for the next 20 minutes about one thing alone, and that one thing is not a thing. It's the very soul of my soul. It's the life of my life, the divine. In some, either taking some form or as a formless light, somehow we're, we're choosing one aspect of the divine, and we're going to think about that alone. And we know how quickly the mind runs off. It runs to the grocery store to pick out the vegetables for tonight's supper. Or it runs to the meeting tomorrow at work where we're going to have to meet the, the new client. Or it, it runs to the grandchildren and what we're going to do next weekend with the grandchildren. <laughs> so then who's in charge? I thought we had, we had, chosen, that we're, we had chosen to think of God. And now the mind is running off. We're still sitting on our cushion. And yet... Mind is running all about and distracted in some kind of unconscious reverie. So do we have a choice? 
Or are we just going through life semi-conscious, impelled by our habits, impelled by our samskaras, the tendencies that we have built up over our lives through repeated actions and thoughts? I had a kind of unsettling experience a few weeks ago. I take a walk every morning after my after the morning meditation in Hollywood. It's fixed, 7.30, get up, leave the temple, go for a walk, 25 minutes, back in time for breakfast. Now, every now and then, I leave just a little early, and that gives me enough time to add one loop to the walk. Otherwise, I take the same walk. I don't think about, do I, should I go take this route or that route? I just go take the same walk. But now and then, if I have five extra minutes, I can take this extra loop. Now, a few weeks ago, I noticed as I was leaving the temple that, oh, I'm actually leaving about five minutes early. So I could take that extra loop. Then I carried on with the walk. And as sometimes happens, I became lost in thought. I was thinking about other things. I didn't notice when the cross point had come for that extra loop. So I was just walking along unconsciously. When I came to my senses, when I came back to the awareness of here and now, where we like to be all the time, but where, alas, we are not much of the time, I found that I had taken the turn for the extra loop. I had taken the turn that I had thought I should take, but at the time of taking it, I was completely unconscious of doing so. And this really unsettled me. I, I felt, who's in charge? I, I didn't choose, I didn't decide to take that turn. It was only a thought that I had had when I left for the walk that I, should, I could take that turn. But when the time actually came to make the decision, I was not there. I was somewhere else. And it seems like uh, most of life actually is like that. Now, this is a small thing, taking a little loop, but most of life is like that. Who's in charge then? We think we are free, as Swami Vivekananda puts it so powerfully. With every breath, with every pulsation of the heart, with every one of our movements, we think we are free. And the very same moment we are shown that we are not. Bound slaves, nature's bond slaves, in body, in mind, in all our thoughts, in all our feelings. And this is maya. Maya, of course, being the, he uses Maya to express the paradox of our situation, that we think we are free, but we see we are not. We think we will live forever, and yet everybody must die. This is Maya. So Swami Vivekananda would call on us all repeatedly to wake up, to arise and awake, Uttishtata Jagrata, arise, awake, come up out of the the darkness of the unconscious life into the light of awareness, of willful action and chosen thoughts and words. A tremendous urge is needed. I imagine the, prime, the primeval lizard who crawled out of the muck to start breathing the air and become a, become a land dweller, had to crawl up out of the muck of the, and mud of the primordial jungle a hundred million years ago or whatever it was and come up out into the sunshine and into the, light, into the oxygen. That's what we have to do. We have to crawl up out of the muck of our unconscious life 
into the light of pure consciousness. Now, when, when it comes to choices, making choices, and this is what actually first led me to think about this topic, is our dear young Nachiketa, that young bo boy full of faith uh, who in the Kata Upanishad comes to the house of Yama, the god of death, and gets from Yama three boons. And of course, he's, the first two boons are granted, and then Nachiketa asks Yama. He wants to know the secret of death. He wants to know who he really is. And Yama says, don't ask about that. Ask for, that's really difficult to know. Ask something else. That's not, uh, that's not for you to know. And Nachiketa says, no, wait a minute. I, that's what I want to know. And who, who better can teach me the secret of death than death himself? So no, I want to know about this. Then Yama tempts him. He offers him whatever he might desire. Whatever you want, Nachiketa. You want to live a thousand years? No problem. I can grant you that. And I can grant you all the delectable, enjoyable things of this world. And not only that, I grant you the power to enjoy them. If you want kingdoms, they're yours. You want gold and cows? Cows, of course, is, was how you measured wealth in those days. You want cows? Thousands of cows, yours. These heavenly damsels not to be found on earth, they can be your attendants. Whatever you want, I'll give it to you. And then Nachiketa says, no, I don't want any of those things. Even a life of a thousand years must come to an end. All the endurable things of the world, they have a beginning, they have an end. They all come to death and they just wear out the senses. No, I want to know. I want to know the secret of death. Then Yama is mightily pleased with Nachiketa. And here he begins his teaching to Nachiketa by um, des describing the two, uh, the choice that all of us continually face and which Nachiketa faced and chose correctly. The choice between Shreyas and Preyas. Two uh, famous verses from the Kata Upanishad. Anyatreyo nyadutaiva preyaha te ubhe nanate purusham sinitaha tayo shreya adadanas sadhu bhavati hi etertadya upreyo vrinite. So Yama says, Shreyas, the good, is one thing, and Preyas, the merely pleasurable, is another thing. They lead to different goals. They lead to different ends. And both of them bind us. They bind us by impelling us to action. So of these two, the one who selects the shreyas, the good, the, tr the truly good, the supreme, the, the, that which leads us to the supreme blessedness, it goes very well with that person. But... The one who chooses preyas loses the goal, misses the way. And he goes on one more verse. Shreyascha preyascha manusya metaha tau samparitya vivinakti dhiraha shreyo hidhiro vipreyaso vrinite preyo mando yogakshema vrinite So he says, he says how 
both Shreyas and Preyas approach us. Approach, they present themselves to a person. We are continually being presented with this choice between Shreyas and Preyas, that which leads to supreme blessedness and that which leads to a good time for a little while. That which is, we can call the electable and that which is only delectable. That which is, uh, we can say, preferable or simply pleasurable. That which is leading to perfection or simply to enjoyment. Perennial joy or passing pleasure, as it said. And he says, um, the wise person examines them, applies discernment, thinks about them, understands them, understands clearly which one is really going to lead to my greatest good, and selects that one. But the fools, the idiots, they choose the pleasurable just for the sake of uh, comfort, for protecting their, belo- their belongings, for gaining more things, yoga kshema. So this is, uh, we can see how Arjuna was unable to do this kind of intense viveka, this discernment at the time of facing these two possibilities, running away from the battle or facing the battle. Clearly, the right thing for him to do was to face the battle, but he couldn't do it because he was unable to see from a higher standpoint and uh, he was confused. Now, it seems to me that Arjuna and when we are facing a trouble with a decision, it means that we haven't got our goal fixed clearly. It is when we have our goal of life fixed clearly that our decisions become easy, our choosing becomes easy. Nachiketa had a very clear goal. He wanted to know the truth. He wanted to know who he really is, his true nature. He wanted to attain spiritual enlightenment. And... As students of Vedanta, we know that this is our highest goal. This is the goal always presented to us. Sri Ramakrishna would say again and again, God-realization is the goal of life. That's the goal. That's the only goal. We may have a number of proximate goals, like uh, from youth on to, uh, I want to get married, I want to get into a good university, I want to get a good job, I need to get married, I want to have a family, I want to retire at 55, I want to build up a nest egg, I want to have grandchildren, all these things. But if there's no higher goal, then we're going to be running in circles, chasing these ephemeral ends. The higher goal is what puts everything into perspective. The higher goal is, I, my true nature, am infinite joy and peace. That infinite joy and peace which I'm seeking is found right within me. And it is attainable. And all the saints and sages of the, from ancient times to the present times have been telling us, you are one with God. The purpose of your life is to realize God. When we can fix that, 
That goal impels us. That is Shreyas. Selecting for that goal is choosing Breyas. When we are able to fix our goal firmly, then it's easy. Then we can easily understand which is Shreyas and which is Breyas. So let Shreyas be our guiding principle. The difficulty, of course, is that that goal hasn't sunk that deep. It hasn't sunk deep into the marrow of our bones. When we can let it become really the most important thing, then our power to choose becomes, uh, is guided by that. And then, of course, the power of will is awakened to attain it. That also is required, the power of will. The dynamic aspect of this power of discernment is what we call the power of will, to actually put into practice that which we choose. There's a funny comedy bit which uh, really speaks to this issue of uh, unleashing our power to choose by Jerry Seinfeld. I think many of you probably know who he is. He's a, a very gifted comedian. Uh, he had a TV show for many years, and also uh, he's a stand-up comedian, and he's also a meditator. He practices in the Transcendental Meditation, TM, and not only practices, he speaks, and he, he gathers celebrities together and, and tries to convince them uh, of the importance of meditation, and I th I'm sure he's successful to a certain extent. He's, uh, he's a, a um, spokesperson for TM, so anyhow, this bit, he talks about how uh, night guy, there's night guy and there's morning guy, and night guy always wrecks it for morning guy. Because night guy wants to hang out late at night watching reruns on television and drinking soda pop or maybe drinking a few beers and eating junk food and stays up late at night. And when the thought occurs that, well, what about getting up in the morning? Oh, that's morning guy's problem. That's not my problem. I'm night guy. I want to have a good time. And, of course, he finally goes to bed. And in the morning, the alarm goes off at 6 o'clock. And the same man has to get up. Oh, it feels terrible. He hardly got, he got, didn't get much sleep. There's still junk food in his belly. Oh, my God. What? That night guy, he ruins my day. Damn that night guy. The funny thing is, it's the same person. <laughs> it's one guy. But it's as if he's two guys. He's the night guy and he's morning guy. Morning guy knows he has to get up and go to work. But night guy doesn't care. This is, the, this is night guy is the classic idiot of this Kata Upanishad who always chooses prayas. It just chooses the, what is immediately pleasant right in front of us. And whereas... Morning guy, at least he has some idea. Well, I have to go to work. This is, this is choosing for Shreya. There's a, there's a big disconnect. And it's an interesting point to note that, um, uh, that Jerry Seinfeld, he also notes this, that uh, it's actually at night that, our, uh, that it's so much easier to succumb to prayas. You know, nobody eats a whole plate of brownies first thing in the morning. We get up in the morning and we find on the kitchen counter a big plate of brownies. No, that's nice. Maybe I'll have one later. And then we go to work and we have a long day at work and we're really tired and we come back home and we just want to get into bed. And suddenly we remember those brownies. 
Oh, I'll go and have one. And we have one. Oh, that's so good. Just one more. It won't hurt anything. We have a second one. And before we know it, the whole plate is gone. That always happens at night. So it's something to remember that uh, the live-for-the-moment guy or me who, who can't clearly choose the right thing, uh, he gets stronger or she gets stronger at night when we're tired. So it's something to, to remember. So... The tragedy of uh, humanity and the tragedy of all of us is reflected in uh, Arjuna's counterpoint, in counterpart rather, in the battle of Kurukshetra, the bad guy, Duryodhana. Before the battle, long before the battle, Sri Krishna went to Duryodhana and tried to reason with him and to explain with it that really what you are doing is wrong. And Duryodhana didn't want to hear about it at all. He said, I know. He admitted, I know. I know what is right. That's not, that's not the problem. I know what is right and I know what is wrong. It's just that I don't feel like doing what's right. And I don't, want, I, I don't feel like desisting from what's wrong. There's a famous verse. Janami dharmam nachame pravrittihi Janam yadharmam nachame nivrittihi so he says, I know what is dharma, what is right to do, but I have no inclination to follow it. I know what is adharma, what is the, what is the negative action, but I don't have that nivritti, I don't have that uh, sense of desisting from that. And then, actually, he blames God. He says, there's some divine power in my heart, that directs me, that impels me to act as I act. So this is the tragedy of humanity. Most people, we know. We know what is right, we know what is wrong, but we have the same problem. We don't have the, the habit of following, the, choosing shreyas over prayas. We don't have the habit of choosing dharma over adharma. And, uh, and then to blame God on top of it, Duryodhana should recognize that it's, it's his own fault. It's his own repeated actions, his own um, thoughts and actions repeated over a lifetime that make these deep samskaras towards wickedness. Whereas Arjuna and the, the Pandavas have their whole life been doing noble actions. And so their whole, the whole tenor of their life is towards goodness. So I'd like to talk a little bit about these habits and these unconscious habits, how hard it is to break a habit, how difficult it is to establish uh, a good habit, and take a little help from current psychological research. Now, first of all, when we, we you know, this is the beginning of January, and many people have set New Year's resolutions, and by now, it's the 6th of January. At least many of those resolutions may have already been broken. <laughs> Why is it that we make a New Year's resolution and we feel, this? yes, this time I'm going to do it? And yet we find pretty soon we've, we've, we've fallen off the wagon, as it were. Why is that? 
Well, there, I think there are several reasons. One reason is that when we fix a goal for ourselves, uh, it seems kind of unattainable. And that really, I think, is the problem in spiritual life. When we fix a goal of God-realization, and that's huge. God, where am I and where is God-realization? The great, there's such a gap between my present state and the state which I'm trying to attain that it seems undoable, and hence we don't even try. We give up trying. Likewise, say we set a, a goal, I'm going to lose 30 pounds. 30 pounds, my God, that's huge. How do we, how do we attain that? So even on the prosaic level, this uh, is relevant. Uh, so it turns out in the management psychology that uh, a goal like that is important. We need the big goals. Put a man on the moon or lose 30 pounds or realize God. But in addition to that, we need subsidiary goals, goals that we can actually attain, that we know how to work on. So in the case of losing 30 pounds, well, I'm going to lose two pounds. That is an attainable goal. I'm going to lose two pounds maybe every month. And then pretty soon, I've lost the 30 pounds. Uh, so they call them, the, the big goal, they call a stretch goal. That's the goal that we're, they're reaching for. But then we also have what they call SMART goals. It's an acronym, SMART. S, specific. M, measurable. A, actionable. R, relevant. And T, time-bound. So how might we apply this in, say, spiritual life? We want to realize God. That's a stretch goal. What kind of SMART goal can we apply? Well, the Swamis keep telling us that we really should meditate every day. They keep saying it, all right, a smart goal would be something specific, like uh, I'm going to meditate for 10 minutes every day, first thing in the morning. It's specific, it's measurable, it's going to be 10 minutes, it's going to be every, every day at 6 o'clock in the morning. It's actionable. I can put this into practice. I can set the alarm 10 minutes early. I may have to shave off some time somewhere. Instead of reading the newspaper for 20 minutes at, uh, in the morning, I'll read it for 10 minutes. It's relevant, very relevant to our goal of God-realization, and it's time-bound. We can say, all right, within a month's time, I will have this habit of 10 minutes a day meditation practice. So this is the way we can apply this kind of uh, smart goal idea to our spiritual life. Set a subsidiary goal that is attainable and, and easy to put into practice. Now, we know that 10 minutes a day of meditation actually it's not that much. It's not probably enough time to really uh, deepen our meditation. So after that, we extend it. The next smart goal will be, all right, 15 minutes. And maybe the next one will be, well, all right, twice a day, 15 minutes, twice a day. In that way, we move forward, establishing these kinds of good habits which guide our lives in the right way towards the divine. There's some fascinating research on how habits work. And when habits kick in, what happens in the brain? A habit, they call it a loop, a habit loop. And there's a cue which starts the habit, like maybe seeing the plate of brownies. And there, then there's the routine, which is eating a whole bunch of brownies. And then there's the reward, which is the enjoyment of eating brownies. There's a secondary reward later, stomachache. Uh, so 
It's fueled by craving for the reward. We want that reward of that bliss of eating brownies. The cue is seeing the brownies, the habit is... And researchers have found that when the habit is, has kicked in, brain activity stops or it slows way down. So it doesn't require thought. There's, there's no thought going on. That's why it's so hard to stop. Once the habit kicks in and we start eating those brownies or whatever it is that's the habit that we... It's so hard to stop because actually it's a habit loop. It's once it's set into motion, it just unfolds of itself. They've done this with rats and mazes and running raises, mazes and putting electrodes in their brains and things like that. So, uh, or they test it with monkeys pulling levers and they get a little reward of juice. And there's a there first there's a, a sound and then then the juice then you have to pull the lever and then there's the juice and. And then the sound clicks in, and even if there's no juice, the uh, brain activity goes down and he keeps pulling the lever. There's, a whole, there's thousands of monkeys uh, sitting in front of machines pulling levers in Las Vegas also, you know. <laughs> pulling lever, pulling lever, pulling lever. Like, uh, this, is, this is, is exactly the same thing. So, to recognize this is important because then we can actually do something about it. Now, these kinds of r- routines, these habit loops, as it were, can also be mental. They can be emotional or mental. Like, my wife suggests I should lose 20 pounds. I should lose some weight. Routine, I get angry. And uh, what's the reward? The an- adrenaline rush of the anger. Or maybe I go and eat a brownie in front of her. So, the, what's the reward? I'm asserting my individuality. No, I'm digging back. Uh, Or another kind of mental loop. Like, I remember how uh, that friend of mine spoke unkindly to me last year, or maybe 10 years ago, and the routine, I should have told her such and such. I should have slapped her in the face and imagined doing it, no? And then the reward, a kind of twisted satisfaction of vindicating my... Uh, my pride, or whatever it is. So, one way to address these is to, uh, we we call it hacking a habit. And there's a book called The Power of Habit by Charles Duhigg. Perhaps some of you have read it. It was a bestseller. He is a gifted writer, a journalist for the New York Times, and he this bit about the mice and the mazes and all that, that comes from his presentation. He describes how he had developed a habit which he was unable to quit. And it was the habit that every afternoon uh, he would go down to the cafeteria and eat a chocolate chip cookie while chatting with his friends. And he had gained some weight. He had gained eight pounds, in fact, and his wife was starting to nag him about losing the weight. And he also felt that he ought not to do this, so he decided he wouldn't have the chocolate chip cookie anymore. But somehow, every day in the afternoon, he found himself down there again eating his chocolate chip cookie. He, he, didn't, he wasn't able to stop the habit. Oh, thank you, Reggie. <coughs> Just what I needed. So he developed a process for uh, analyzing this habit and breaking it. And it's a four-step process. First, he identif- to, first, we have to identify the routine. 
the habit routine. Then we experiment with the rewards. Then we isolate the cue that starts that habit loop in motion. And then we put into play a plan. So his routine was easy to identify. He would get up every afternoon from his desk, go down to the cafeteria, and have a chocolate chip cookie. Eat it and eat it. Buy a chocolate chip cookie, eat it while chatting with his friends. And clearly, this was satisfying some... The reward was satisfying some kind of craving. But what the craving was exactly, that he didn't know. So he worked on identifying the craving. Uh, Was it that he was hungry? Well, then eating an apple should work just as well. So he tried eating an apple. And then he would check in 15 minutes later, do I still crave that chocolate chip cookie? Yes, I still crave it. Then he knew it's not because he's hungry. Maybe he's tired. Well, he wants the sugar rush. Well, he experimented having a cup of coffee instead. That should solve the problem. 15 minutes later, no, he still wants that cookie. Maybe he needs a break from work. So he tried walking around the block and coming back. No, he still wanted the the cookie. Maybe it's that he wants some social interaction with his friends. So he tried that. That seemed to be what he actually was craving, was social interaction. Because while eating the chocolate chip cookie, he would be chatting with his friends. And the two had gotten connected. But actually, what he wanted was to chat with his friends. So, uh, then he needed to isolate the cue. What started that habit loop What put it into action? So he he was very methodical about it. He said there are five categories, location, time, emotional state, other people, and immediately preceding action. He took careful notes for for three days. Every time the urge hit to to go get that chocolate cookie, he said, well, where am I? What time is it? Uh, What is my emotional state? What other people are around? And what did I do just before this? And he found that there were no com- the only common thing among uh, all three days was time. It was between three and four in the afternoon. So then he took made this plan. Here's where the choice comes in. He made the t- he, he said he decided that every day at three thirty he'll get up from his desk and go find a friend and chit chat for ten minutes, gossip about, make small talk, and then come back to his desk. He set an alarm. Three thirty the alarm would go off. He would get up from his desk, go chat, and Before long, he didn't need the alarm anymore. And so far as I know, he still has that habit. At 3.30 every day, he gets up from his desk and goes and chit-chats with a friend. So uh, every habit starts with a choice, an an active choice, a conscious choice. And gradually, if, if it's a bad habit, we get a bad habit ingrained. If it's a good habit, it's a good habit ingrained. Here, he was able to implement a good habit. So it's, it's impressive. It's a clever way of dealing with a bad habit. But actually, I find it somewhat unsatisfying because it seems so prosaic. There's no higher goal. He just wanted to stop eating a cookie, and he went to all this trouble. I somehow feel that if, he had, if Duhigg was a meditator, he wouldn't have had to go through all of this. He would have been able to uh, assert his, his power of discernment a little more strongly and not have to go through this rigmarole. But uh, still, because we have this idea that that life has a purpose, life has a higher goal. We have this overarching goal of spiritual realization. 
That is what we want. If without a higher goal, then we are, all right, he's hacking his habits all along, but we have so many bad habits. We can't, can we do this with all of them? So rather, we place the goal of God-realization at the forefront. This provides the motivation for overcoming our unhelpful habits. But in certain stubborn cases, let's see how we might apply this formula, Duhigg's formula. Let's take the example of that, uh, I just mentioned, that habit loop of thinking how I should have, how I should have insulted my boss. Or, or. So we had some social interaction in the past, and I think most of us do this. We remember some social interaction which was painful, and we recreate it in our mind and imagine how we should have responded, and it generally involves some kind of insult or even a physical assault or something, some way to make it right. That's what we should have done. It's, it's, an, it's a, a, an unhealth, a kind of a violent thought loop. Now, we can identify the routine, thinking about how so-and-so insulted me and imagining that I slap her, Okay. The cue, what's the cue? Remembering that person. Maybe it's, we have to, we can examine our minds. Whenever we remember that person, that thought comes up. The reward, some kind of twisted satisfaction of vindicating ourselves. And the plan. The plan, substitute something else. We sub, in this system, we substitute the routine. The cue remains the same whether it's seeing the plate of brownies or, or uh, um, remembering that person who insulted us, the cue is the same, but the habit, rather than letting that uh, routine of imagining how we fight back goes into place, we substitute compassion. We substitute forgiveness. We pray, we, we pray actively for that person. Oh, Lord, bless this person. May they be perfectly happy and peaceful and fulfilled and the reward, actually, the reward is better. The re- for that reward, we get genuine peace. When we pray for others, when we forgive others, we gain peace. So the reward is actually more wonderful. So this is, uh, it sounds like maybe a newfangled way of dealing with a habit. Actually, this method has been taught for thousands of years in the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, and it's called Pratipaksha Bhavanam substituting a, a thought. We, we're troubled by a certain kind of thought, and we substitute an opposing thought, and it works. It works. And maybe Duhigg's uh, research helps us see from a scientific, uh, modern sci- with modern scientific language how it works, but it works. So I guess we're coming up on the end of our time, but I'd like to... Um, give some examples of people who are known to me and maybe known to you who do this. One, of, one friend of mine, a long-time friend in San Francisco, she has the habit of when a, a negative thought comes up, or especially when in conversation we criticize someone harshly or imagine some uh, possible bad result, she'll say, cancel that. Cancel that. And it's, it's beautiful. And then drops it. So, oh, di- didn't that, wasn't that 
bad person, what that person did was really bad. Anyhow, cancel that. <laughs> or what if an earthquake comes and this building could just collapse? Anyhow, cancel that. Cancel that. It's a very attractive way of dealing with unhelpful thoughts, negative thoughts. Just cancel that. Now, I'd like to tell a little story uh, about Swami Swahanandaji. I think many of us here know him and love him and revere him. This was when I had just joined the monastery in Trubuco in Orange County. And uh, Swami Atmastananda, newly made the vice president of the order at that time, was coming for a visit. And Swami Swahanji was a little bit nervous about it. He wanted that everything should go very smoothly. They were both giants. They were both big swamis. Now, when I say big swamis, I mean they had something. They had a presence. They had a gravitas. They had, they had some spiritual realization. So just coming to them, we feel like these guys are giants. Uh, and they were both giants. And in the past, they had been somewhat rivals also. So you have these two giants coming together. Swami Swahananji was nervous. Everything should go smoothly. Now, one thing that Swami Atmastananji had, a, a, and some people have this, an intolerance for sour foods. Some people, they just can't take sour foods. It, it just sets their, their hair up to stand up on the back of their neck, and, and they can't bear it. Swami Atmastananji had this problem. So... Uh, Swami Swahanji had instructed the cooks there should be no yogurt, no sour yogurt given to the Swami. Rather, sweet curd is to be prepared, mishtidoi. And a recipe was given to Swami Viprananda, and he was to implement it and make the sweet curd. Now lunch is, lunch is on, and I'm in the kitchen helping get the lunch out. And Swami Atmasanda's attendant is there, and I know that Indian Swamis like yogurt with their meals. And uh, so I ask him, does, does he want some yogurt? Oh, yes, yes, he wants. So I take from the fridge the Trader Joe's non-fat yogurt. He's, a, he's an old Swami. He should have non-fat after all. And non-fat is more sour than the regular. So I give a little bowl of, of uh, Trader Joe's and give it to the attendant. And he whisk, whisks it out to the table. And, and so it's there. And uh, so what happens, of course, <laughs> is after the meal, he reaches for the yogurt. And he takes one bite, oh, sour, and he pushes it away. Hmm? That's what happened. So after lunch, Swami Swahananji went for a little walk on the road back and forth, and I had the privilege of accompanying him. It was just the two of us. And it went like this. I told Viprananda that he, sh- that he used to have mishti doi, there's, there'd be nothing sour. I told him, he Ramakrishna, he Ramakrishna, Hari Om, Hari Om. But I told him, he was given the recipe, he was supposed to do it, it's a simple matter. He Ramakrishna, He Ramakrishna, Hari Om, Hari Om. But I, I gave the instruction specifically, he had the recipe, he was supposed to do it, and why it was done? He Ramakrishna, He Ramakrishna, Hari Om, Hari Om. See, Swami Swahananji was actively working with his own mind. He was having negative thoughts about a monk, a brother monk, Swami Viprananda, who had, had somehow dropped the ball, it seems. Actually, the truth of the matter is that um, uh, Swami Vipranda had made the sweet curd and it was served at supper. 
and everything was, it just wasn't ready, I guess, at lunchtime. And so everything ended well for Swami Viprananda. The sweet curd was served, and Swami Atmaslanji liked it. And everything also ended well for me, because I never told Swami Swahananji that <laughs> I was the one <laughs> who put out the sour yogurt. But the point of the story is, look how Swami Swahananji was working with his mind. He was getting a, a negative thought, an angry thought, and immediately he canceled it by calling on the Lord. He Ramakrishna, He Ramakrishna. And then this formula which he often used, Hari Om, Hari Om. And when he would use that, I always feel, felt like he was invoking the infinite peace and bliss of Brahman, of Satchit Ananda, which is our true nature. By saying Hari Om, Hari Om, he is invoking that, reminding himself that that is my true nature that I am, that infinite reality. Sour yogurt doesn't matter, nothing matters. Hari Om, Hari Om. So it was a great lesson and a beautiful to see how uh, uh, great souls also have trouble with their minds and how seriously and actively he worked on it. So I guess that's about it. Let's Let us... Uh, follow, take the examples of these great souls whom we have met and whom we have associated with and learn to awaken our power to choose. Uh, we're faced with choice. Uh, we've, t- we've talked today about how much of what we do is unconscious, just driven by our own past samskaras, by our cravings for pleasure and comfort which come naturally to a body. Uh, and how we can become aware of that and understand how at every moment we are given the choice, as it were. At every moment we have the choice to choose Shreyas or Priyas. At every moment we have the, we, we can choose to feel the presence of God right now. We can choose to see the divine shining in the hearts of others. Or we can choose to just act for the, for the comfort and ease of this body or the, the protection of, the, of this false self that we call ego, we have the choice at every moment. The divine is right here, shining within, shining within all of you. We have the choice to see it. We can take that choice. That is the choice which is offered uh, to us. It's for us to take it. <laughs>